Hello and welcome to The Undaunted Creative, a podcast that takes a closer look into the story behind success in the creative fields. Today's guest, Jamie Bowles, is a successful entrepreneur who originally created an internet radio station entitled WJMS Radio. Since its inception, the station has provided a voice for the people by focusing on positive news throughout the world. More than seven years ago, Jamie expanded the station's reach and audience by creating WJMS Media. Based in Savannah, Georgia, the company focuses on a continuation of giving back to community by providing timely stories that shed light on individuals who are making an impact on those around them. In essence, the company gives back by embracing the unsung heroes who make a difference. On a personal level, I've worked closely with Jamie in placing students in remote internships with WJMS and have witnessed firsthand students being trained in areas such as on-air talent, producing, production, social media marketing, and programming. Most importantly, Jamie oversees all of this, and any student that has been through the internship program knows that they have found a mentor for life. It is my honor to welcome Jamie Bowles to the program. Welcome, Jamie. Hi, how you doing? Thank you for that. Well, first, let's talk a little bit about radio. Over the past 25 years, the shape of radio has changed quite a bit. Before the internet, radio on-air personalities were the quote-unquote influencers of the day. What were some of your favorite radio memories growing up on the East Coast? So I grew up listening to Jammin' 94.5 in Massachusetts, which is, I think they're still happening or they're still going on uh, right now. You know, they haven't changed anything, um, but they were like the quintessential hip hop and, and R&B station in Massachusetts. And I, my earliest memories were of listening to Baltazar and Pebbles on the morning show. Um, Pebbles has now, of course, gone to several other places and Baltazar as well, I believe too, went to a couple different stations. Um, but my earliest memories were just listening to them on the radio. And I remember hearing my first jam scam, which is funny. It's like, I think every station now has incorporated a, a, a jam scam style uh, phone call segment into their shows where they call people unexpectedly and play pranks. And then by the end of the call, they're like, this is, you know, such and such host from, you know, 94.5 and you're on, you know, jam scam. And it's it's always been something that I remembered and one of my fondest memories uh, growing up and just always being able to get the latest and greatest music and stuff like that. So that's always what I remember uh, from radio when I was a kid. Well, I think most young people find it hard to believe that in many cases, radio was where we first found out, as you said, about new album releases, concerts, and also breaking news. One station in particular, WVON which is still active here in Chicago. It's a talk radio station and really an outlet for the community. Radio stations like WVON encourage people to call in and talk and really have their opinions matter. When you started WJMS Radio, was that one of the key goals, that community interaction with the hosts? Yeah, absolutely. And it's actually funny that you know, you mentioned that because I remember also being younger and listening to talk radio and just being bored. You know, I'm not going to lie to you. As a little kid, you never wanted to hear talk radio. You wanted to hear music. Um, and I always told myself, especially once I decided in college that radio was going to be my major, that I didn't want to do talk radio because I don't like my voice, ironically. So I was like, I don't want to do talk radio. I don't want to listen to myself talk all day. And I got an internship at 900 AM WURD, which was a talk radio station and ended up having a talk show. And I, you know, sat in front of that mic the first time and was like, oh, <laughs> fell in love with it. I absolutely fell in love with it. But um, 
fast forwarding a couple of years, starting WJMS Radio, it was an expansion of my talk show um, Sound Off, which I had sort of had on phillyhotradio.com and then got the opportunity to bring my own platform um, underneath that umbrella. And so I really wanted to expand that same concept, which is a lot of exactly what you said, you know, speaking to people in the community, talking to folks that are making a difference and really just spotlighting those folks that the media would otherwise ignore. And so when I went out or set out to create this radio station, um, I really wanted to expand that concept and be like, you know what, I have a show talking to these people, but why not have, you know, an entire platform that's dedicated to, you know, those stories and those individuals and, and the people behind the scenes that are making a difference, you know? So before starting the station, you gained some valuable experience in Philadelphia by working for Radio Disney and promotions. What were some of the takeaways from that position? So Radio Disney is not what you would think it is. And doing promotions with Radio Disney was not like being on air with, with Disney Channel. It was actually dancing, uh, which took me totally out of my comfort zone. But that was definitely a takeaway from that experience because I was like, all right, I'm going to interview with Radio Disney. I'm not quite sure what the promotions team is going to be doing, but if anybody's familiar with the promotions team, if you ever see a radio station at an event um, and you see the giveaways and you see the interaction that they have with the community and stuff like that, that's really largely what promotions does. You know, they kind of, they drive around and they interact with people they see on the street. Um, for Radio Disney folks, we actually like had dances, choreographed dances that we had to do at events to, you know, some of the top songs and the top pop songs that were out. But some of the takeaways and some of the things that I think Radio Disney did for me at the time was it really broke me out of my shell a little bit. It kind of, it was my first taste into you know, being in the community, if you're, if I'm being really honest, because I had to actually speak to people at the table. I had to give things out. I had to talk to kids and, and interview kids and, you know, really interact with the community um, at public events and things like that. And then after doing all of that, I had to turn around and do this dance that we choreographed. And I'm not a dancer. Like I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not on stages doing dances. So for me, I was just like, oh God, I got to learn choreography. Like this is insane. So Radio Disney really was probably one of the first jobs that I had that really helped me break out of my shell and just be a little bit more comfortable in my skin. Um, but it also was like my first taste into dealing with the community at, in, a, in a real way and really interacting with people one-on-one -on -one, face to face, you know, and, and kids too as well. So it really just gave me that first uh, foray into community engagement. Well, you know, the arts and helping others seems to be really woven into your fabric. You spent time at New York University as a facility manager within residential life. So you're working with students and then you get a fantastic opportunity as facility manager at the New Victory Theater in Times Square, where you'd be working closely on engaging the community in family entertainment. How did this position come about? Uh, you know, what's ironic is like, as you're <laughs> telling me all this stuff, I'm realizing the theme woven through all of my jobs and all of my different things. And there's definitely a community <laughs> and youth oriented theme and on all of my, uh, all aspects of my life. And that's really funny. It's like, I'm tickled that I, I just put that together right now. I'm like, oh, snap. Okay. Um, but the... Which opportunity do you mean? The New York University opportunity or the New Victory New Theater? New Victory Which, Theater. So New York, the New Victory Theater came from, you know, me just really wanting to branch out a little bit more. You know, at that point, I had been working for New York University for about two years. And, you know, there was some changes going on and some things happening at the university. And I was really just thinking that it was my time to sort of try something different and try something new. 
And at that point, I had went from working at Arcadia University for about nine years to New York University. So I really had had that higher education college setting for a lot of my career. And I was thinking to myself that if I really wanted to have um, longevity in the facilities maintenance industry in general, um, I needed to kind of branch out a little bit and try some different industries. And the opportunity to be a facility manager at the New Victory Theater, which is a, ironically, it's a nonprofit theater for children in New York, you know? And so um, the opportunity presented itself and I, I jumped at the chance. Number one, it was an easier commute in New York, which means a lot. Uh, it was a little bit less train for me. Um, and also it was a, a little bit just more of a community involvement with New York University even though I was dealing with the students and the maintenance, I didn't actually get to interact with the students as much as I wanted to. And I did find myself wanting more engagement in that sense. You know, I was finding myself putting myself on more committees and, you know, being sort of the face of facilities for different things so that I could interface and enter, you know, and communicate with the students and stuff like that. Um, and the opportunity to work for the New Victory Theater popped up and I realized that that would be a direct uh, correlation with the community, you know, because doing the maintenance there and, and being the facility manager there means that I'm actually talking to the patrons and I'm getting to know people in between shows. And, you know, how it works in theater is uh, we had two shows. We would have a morning show, which was traditionally a show for students. So we would have the field trip students coming in from underserved uh, schools in the community of New York, different boroughs and stuff like that. They would come in for the 11 o'clock show. Um, there would usually be a Q&A beforehand with the actors and stuff like that. And there'd be some activities downstairs beforehand and some activities afterwards. And then the show would wrap, the students would go. And then typically there would be another show at like 7 p.m. that night. And that was for the general public. So we would have two shows a day. And in between those shows, as we're waiting for students to come in and as we're having patrons come in, I'm standing in the front of the lobby. I'm at the lobby greeting people as they come in, saying hello, making sure that overall the facility looks clean and presentable and it's an experience that people are gonna enjoy. You know, we wanted to make sure that everything was top notch so that when they walked out of there, you know, the facilities was a reflection of the, the, the show that they saw, awe and wonder and excitement. So for me, it was a, a much better opportunity to engage with the community and to continue doing some of the the things that I love in terms of, you know, working with kids and stuff like that, because it was a direct interface with them. So it was it ended up being a perfect transition. So when we're talking about New York, you know, New York continues to evolve, you know, year after year. What are some of your fondest memories of your time in New York, were there places that you went to that you could still envision today as like, oh my God, I remember that time in history of going to this place, you know, this, um, whether it's an event or a restaurant or something along those lines? I will say that there's a lot of different things about New York that I remember. You know, I remember uh, I actually got to see the lighting of the Christmas tree in Rockefeller Center. That was a major thing for me. Um, when I first moved to New York, I was in my late 20s and just mid to late 20s and really excited to be there. And that's a perfect place for somebody who's in their mid to late 20s because it's go, go, go. The city doesn't sleep. There's always something to do. It's fun. Um, and so I remember doing a lot of those things. I've done all the touristy things. I've, you know, I've ridden the ferry. I've walked the steps of the Empire State Building. I've walked across the Brooklyn Bridge, not just for fun, but also for some of the cancer advocacy stuff I do. Um, I've, I've done the Rockefeller Center thing. I've skated in, uh, is it Central Park? I skated in one of those parks, Rockefeller Plaza. Park. Okay, great. Yeah, it might have been the skating at Rockefeller Plaza. I've done that too, you know. So I've I've done a lot of the things, and I've seen some crazy things. Like, don't get me wrong, I've seen some things in Times Square that I'm like, 
only in New York does that fly. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> raises an eyebrow. Um, but some of my fondest memories are really just connecting with friends at some of these events and, and making those memories, you know, and so much of New York is mythical. And I say that because like, when you hear people talk about wanting to go to New York, they want that those bright lights and the attractions and the excitement and all that kind of stuff. And actually living in the city, you know, you lose a little bit of that excitement because you live there. And you're like, I, people are like, I want to go to Times Square. And I'm like, yeah, I work in Times Square. I'm good. Like, <laughs> I'm not excited about Times Square. But a lot of my excitement and a lot of my best memories come from watching my friends' eyes, friends and family's eyes light up when they got to see these things that I, you know, had maybe even come to take for granted a little bit in New York. So some of those things were were really exciting for me to just experience through others. Um I definitely miss the food. I could get my hands on any food I wanted anywhere at any time. Um, and it was probably dangerous and that's probably why I gained so much weight, but that's a whole nother story. I, I just enjoyed being able to experience food from all kinds of different cultures um, and stuff like that. And, and being able to really get my hands on whatever I had a craving for um, and just, you know, braving the subway to go get it. It was always, you know, fun to, to try out new restaurants in New York. So, yeah. You're in your early 30s. You're living in New York City, a healthy, active, non-smoker, and then suddenly you get the news that you have lung cancer. Um, before the diagnosis, were there some indicators that something just didn't seem or feel right? Yeah, there were. Um, and there, you know, they always say if you could go back in time, right, or hindsight is 2020. Um, my first couple of things that I noticed was that I had a cough. Um, and like, or like, I'll start, I'll start at the beginning. I had a wheeze that wouldn't go away. Um, it started as just sort of something that would come when I laid down at night to go to sleep. It was just like a kind of <laughs> trying to catch my breath sort of thing. Um, and it merged into a shortness of breath that started to happen just all the time to the point where I couldn't figure out what the common denominator was. I was like, it's not just happening at home. It's not happening when I'm out and about. It's happening at work. It was happening kind of everywhere. I couldn't figure out what the common denominator was. Um, and I had a little bit of a cough as well. So I did actually go get checked out and the doctor said it might be asthma or allergies. And so naturally I kind of pushed things to the side a little bit thinking that maybe that's what it was. And um, at the time of diagnosis, I had just gotten into a, a stable relationship. You know, I was 30 years old, my metabolism slowed. I'm in the comfortable relationship now. So um, I started gaining a little bit of weight and I decided that I was gonna go get into the gym. Um, and for me, I always found the gym to be kind of boring. I just am like, I'm not somebody who just wants to go to the gym and pick things up and put them back down. Like I need something more interactive, which shouldn't surprise anybody listening to the interview based on my my work history and whatnot, that I need something more interactive and, and something a little bit more fun. And so I ended up getting into kickboxing uh, and I got really heavy into kickboxing and was really enjoying it. And so I ended up, um, sort of masking or not necessarily masking, but kickboxing started to mask some of the symptoms that I was having that I started to attribute to the high intensity cardio workout. So the shortness of breath, I was like, hey, you know, you're not used to working out this hard. It's from, you know, all the work that you're doing or um, the back pain that started to happen later on in the year. I was starting to think, you know, your, your hands are up, you're punching all the time. It's got to be, you know, lactic acid buildup in your muscles from punching and, and kicking and things like that. Um, and then I think the the straw that broke the camel's back for me was uh, I was in the gym uh, with my, he's now my husband, but he was my boyfriend at the time. And we were in the gym and we were on the treadmill and I knew I'm like, all right, I'm not the most in shape person in the world, but I know that I can get on a treadmill and run a mile and be okay. And that was typically what my baseline was. I would run a mile and then I would do some things on the machines and then, you know, I called it a day and I was like, I'm good. 
but I was on the treadmill with him and I got to about a quarter mile into the run and I was like, I have to stop. Like, I was like, I'm just, I'm not breathing, you know? And it wasn't one of those things where it's like, you know, it's the runner's high and you just keep going through it and you're going to get those endorphins and feel really good. It was like, no, I'm not getting enough oxygen. Like, I'm just like, I'm trying to breathe in and just not enough oxygen is getting into my lungs and I had to stop. And that was at that point that I was like, all right, I need to like, and he had been pushing me to go get a second opinion. And I was like, all right, I need to really figure out this second opinion now because something, this, this here is not normal. Absolutely yeah, you, not normal and something's got to give. You and just, so that was when I decided to go do that. Yeah. And you felt obviously, you know, your body, as they say, you know, you, you know, your body as, as well as any, you know, as, as anyone. And, and you just felt like something wasn't right. So what's also shocking is this diagnosis was stage four. What was the initial prognosis from doctors at that time? And the doctor sits down with you, tells you this. What's going through your head? Well, for starters, I wasn't staged immediately. I didn't find out it was stage four until the surprise doctor's visit several weeks later. Um, I I went into the hospital um, after being, uh, you know, after just really not feeling well. Um, I ended up going and getting that second opinion. They did a chest scan. The first thing the doctor asked me was, has anybody done an x-ray on you? And I was like, no. So he's like, I'm going to send you upstairs to do an x-ray. Everything was contained in the same building. So he's like, go upstairs, get an x-ray, and then come back down, and we'll talk about the results. And I was like, okay, cool. So I went upstairs, and I got the x-ray done. I came back down. And when I came back in the room, I remember like all the blood had drained from his face. And he was like, are you feeling okay? And I was like, I mean, yeah, I'm I'm tired, but I'm always tired because I was, you know, go, 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 radio station and just working in New York, living in New York, and I'm always tired. So I was like, yeah, I mean, I feel fine. I'm just, I'm tired, but I'm always tired. And he's like, your entire left lung is covered in fluid. And he's like, I need to admit you to the hospital right now. And I was like, whoa, okay, hold on a minute. Like, time out. Like, what do, what do you mean? And he, he showed me the x-ray and I couldn't believe it. It was literally, you could see like my right lung, black, perfectly fine and healthy. And there was nothing on the left side. It was so covered in fluid. It was just white space over there. And I'll never forget. He was like, you know, I don't understand how you have been functioning, you know, this long with, you know, just one lung like this, you know, and it was kind of crazy. And so I ended up telling him, I was like, okay, look, I have a lot going on right now. Uh, I do realize this is serious. But I was like, at the time, you know, Frank was getting ready to go off to Korea. Um, and that was happening on Saturday. This was a Wednesday appointment I had. I remember the days very specifically. Um, Frank was getting ready to leave to go to Korea on that Saturday. I had a station event, a major station event that I had done promo and and there was paid artists and pe like it was an event. And I was like, I cannot cancel this event. Like this is something I've been planning for a long time um, happening on Saturday as well. And my cat had gone into the hospital that same day too. So I was like, look, whatever this is, I'm I'm gonna have to have it wait for just a couple more days while I figure I, while I sort down and, and get some things battened down in my life. I was like, I cannot go into the hospital right this moment. And he's like, well, at the very least, let me send you to do a CT scan so we can decide it, figure out if this is fluid or a mass. And I was like, okay. So Friday I went and did that CT scan. Saturday came, Frank went away, cat had come home from the hospital. My event 
actually ended up getting canceled. And I was actually very grateful because I really wasn't feeling well at that point. And I remember Sunday I went into work because my work schedule included Saturday and Sunday. That's the, the theater in New York operates Wednesday through Sunday typically. And we close on Mondays and Tuesdays. So I was at work on Sunday, not feeling well at all. It's the first time I can remember really feeling crappy and being like, yeah, I just am not a hundred percent. Like I really do not feel good today. And I remember calling the doctor to say, hey, what were the results of the CT scan? And they're like, we need you in the hospital ASAP. And my uh, my best friend was like, yeah, you're going to go, right? I'm going to come up to New York and you're going to go to you're going to go to the hospital tomorrow. And I was like, yes, I'm going to go to the hospital tomorrow. So she came up and we went and uh, they admitted me. Um, I ended up getting two and a half liters of fluid drained out of my chest. That was what was in that that chest cavity there. And they did a biopsy on the fluid. I was in the hospital for about six or seven days. And mind you, I had never spent a night in the hospital before. I had no reason to, no asthma, no allergies, no complicated health issues. I, I was just a regular, you know, perfectly healthy person with no issues. So six days in the hospital, a catheter put in, you know, or a chest tube put in to drain the fluid out of my, uh, my lungs. And they did a biopsy. It came back and they were like, yeah, the fluid that we tested, came back and, and tested malignant. And I was like, wait a minute. It's like malignant means cancer, doesn't it? Um, and they were like, yeah, it does. And they were like, we just need to get some more answers and we'll we'll let you know. So I ended up leaving the hospital knowing that I had something going on. I didn't know what it was. Uh, about a week later, the longest week of my life, um, I had to sit down with my on my oncologist, which was strange. All of a sudden I had an oncologist. I didn't, I just had an oncologist at that point sat down with him and was going over things. And I remember during the appointment, it was very jovial. Um, you know, like it wasn't doom and gloom. And he was like, yeah, you know, you're gonna have to change your diet. And I was like, oh no, not my steak. And he's like, yeah, you know, go to a plant-based diet. And, you know, uh, it's out positive. So, you know, it's highly treatable, highly manageable. I, I literally walked out of that oncologist's office thinking that I had a mild form of cancer and everything was fine. And I was like, oh, I'm I'm good. Like, I'm fine. I'm, there's gonna be some some medication and I'll be, I'll be straight. Like, no worries, no idea. Um, this was around Christmas, New Year's time. It was right in right in between that week there, right? So, uh, or like right before Christmas and, and into New Year's. So I started having shortness of breath again uh, about a week or so later. And at this point, I'm on like terror alert orange for my health. I'm like any little thing. I'm like, hey, yeah. So I'm, I'm just, I'm paying attention now. Like I am, I'm tuned in. So I had shortness of breath again and I called the doctor. He was on vacation because it's holiday time. You know, he's with his family. So I went back to the original doctor who did my chest x-ray and because I was just like, I just I just want to get an x-ray, you know, make sure things are good. I just had like mad fluid drained off my lungs. I just really need to make sure that I'm okay before we go into this long holiday. So he's like, oh yeah, you know, with stage four cancer, you're going to see, you know, fluid developing all the time. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I was like, what did you just say? And he's like, yes, it's stage. Did no one tell you that this is stage four? And I remember Tom, I just burst into tears because nobody staged me and nobody told me that it was stage four. And I'm like, stage four is the last stage. There are no more levels to this. Like, what do you mean I'm stage four? You know, I was in disbelief, you know, and I was in that office by myself and it was such an uppercut to the stomach. I just, I remember like, I don't, I couldn't tell if someone was like, what did the doctor say after that? No idea. When he said stage four, I think I left my body. I think I just, I, 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 you know, they talk about having outer body experiences. I'm pretty sure I had one because I couldn't tell you what was said. I do remember that he said, he's like, you know, I've seen people live anywhere from four to six years. And I was like, are you kidding me right now? I was like, are you telling me that I'm not going to live to be 40? 
Like, is that what you're saying to me in this office? I came in here to get an x-ray because I had a little bit of shortness of breath and you're telling me I'm going to die before 40. I was distraught. I was absolutely distraught. I think I was so in shock that I went back to work. <laughs> I got back on the subway and I went back to work because it was a work day for me. And uh, I remember I must've been broadcasting it all over my face because I walked into my job and my, my best friend at work, um, she saw me and she was just like, are you okay? And I was just like, no, I'm not okay. I'm absolutely not okay. And she's like, do you want to talk? And I was like, yeah, I really, really need to talk. And she's like, I'll meet you downstairs in a minute. And I was like, okay. And I remember I, I met her in the hallway and like, I just like fell into her arms crying because I was like, it's stage four. Like this is stage four cancer. And I remember that was the first time that like anybody had actually seen me be vulnerable about it. Because like I said, I walked out of my oncologist's office that week before like feeling like, oh, you know, switch to a little bit of a plant-based diet and, and take some medication and I'll be okay. Nobody said the word stage four to me at all whatsoever. And to, to find that news out by myself, you know, on a whim um, was like traumatizing. You know, I, I swear I still have a little PTSD from that. I think if I had to go back into that doctor's office, I probably would have a panic attack because every time I went in there, it was bad news. Like it was never never anything positive that came out of that building for me. So I think that building just is like a dark structure um, in my memories right now. But I'm not even sure if I answered your question. You did. You did. Yeah. So I, I got <laughs> to really give you a lengthy answer. Sure. No, but I've got to ask you. So the oncologist comes back and from vacation. What was that conversation like? <laughs> I don't know. I don't. Yeah. I, I think at that point, I just was, I think I was on autopilot, to be honest with you. I remember being very like just annoyed that I'm like, how did I had to find this out? Like accidentally, like you didn't tell me this was stage four, you know, like I just remember being very annoyed because I don't think I saw that oncologist again until I want to say several weeks later when I began to start my medication um, because I, I don't have any kids, any biological kids. And that was something that was important to me. And, you know, before, um, you know, all this happened, I was, you know, excited waiting for, for marriage to get a husband and have a family and do all of the things. I waited on purpose for all of that stuff. And I finally had gotten married. And two weeks after the marriage, I got this diagnosis and I just was like, how unfair, how so unfair is this, you know? And um, having a child and having ch uh, children was still important to me. So I decided that I was gonna freeze my eggs before starting my medication. And so I took about a month um, in between diagnosis and and actually starting regimen to go through that process of freezing my eggs you know so i didn't see that doctor until like probably january by then i had already gotten into full swing of cancer maintenance at this point you know so while i was probably really pissed off i never got a chance to really voice to him how hurt i was that he didn't stage me in that meeting um and he let me walk out of that office i mean yes it's nice to have hope walking out of an office but like he really did me a disservice by not giving me the full truth or not giving me the full story of what was going on with me. And, you know, it, I just never got to talk to him about it, unfortunately. Yeah. And it, it really feels like you were hoodwinked. Yeah. Completely. Yeah, that's a good word for it. Completely. So, you know, you talked about keeping this private and you let a few people know about it that were close to you and others, you didn't really, you know, go into detail, but I was reading about this um, in an article that you wrote um, regarding a, a guest was on your radio show, and it really inspired you to open up about your diagnosis. Did you feel that there was this sense of relief to maybe unload that stress of keeping this secret private 
Um, and did you feel from the physical side that this public revelation helped, like physically? Did you feel you were in a better place after announcing? A little bit, yeah. It was. I had a guest on my show who didn't know me from from Adam. She had no idea who I was. Nothing that I was going through because I wasn't public with my diagnosis yet. And she had her own health conditions going on, a lot of serious health conditions. Conditions, and she just started talking about, you know, what she was going through and how she had, you know, she was using whatever platform she could to talk about it, and how people, you know, always hide things and don't talk about things, and they have platforms but they don't use them to to, you know, educate people on stuff. And like, I really just felt like she was she was directly speaking to me, even though she didn't know anything about me. And I was like, like it was like God was like, hey girl, she's talking, tapping me on the shoulder, she's talking to you. Um, so I really was just like, okay. I get it. I will. I will. It's time. All right. I get it. It's time. So uh, I ended up. I, I have a lot of contacts. So just put it that way. I, you know, grew up in Massachusetts. Lived in New York. Lived in Philly. Uh, communications person. So I talk a lot. <laughs> clearly, um, a lot of people that I know. And so I had no desire to rehearse this conversation two thousand times. All the people that I knew um, to tell them this news because you can't send it out in a mass text or something like that. So I just thought to myself at the time, like the best thing I could do is go live on Facebook. It's like, I'm just going to go live on Facebook and I'm going to tell all. I'm just going to tell people what I've been through the last couple of months, tell people where I'm at and what's going on with me. And and we're just going to see what happens. And I'll never forget, you know, the outpouring of support. Actually, I, you know, and I went, I told you the first person that I really broke down to was my my work friend, my my best friend at work. I cried on that Facebook Live. So now everybody's seeing me crying, you know? So I, I was very vulnerable on that Facebook Live. I told everything from, you know, how upset I was about the family planning situation to, you know, just what I went through in the hospital with the chest tube procedure. You know, I was wide awake for it, felt every bit of it while they were draining the fluid. It was terrible. Um, I just told everything because I was like, what I don't want is to have to keep going over this with people. So what I want is a full scale, you know, tell all. So I can just say, here's a link, watch it when you get an hour and you have time and then call me afterwards and we can talk. Um, because I just, I physically was like, I don't think I can do this multiple times. I'm just like, now I'm going to tell the story because I've told the story to countless people at this point and on countless stages, I've come to terms with it. It's, it's become part of my journey. Um, but back then I was like, I can't be crying and blubbering all over the place all the time. Like I, I really, I, I have stuff to do, <laughs> um, you know, but yeah, I absolutely, I felt a sense of relief and I also felt a sense of like, you know, all right, it's out there, you know, like it's like putting, it's like shooting your shot, like, okay, it, it's in the universe now. So here it is, here I am. And I got support and outpouring of love from people I haven't talked to since elementary school. People who have been on my Facebook page for, you know, years, you know, you, you connect with old folks from old friends from school and stuff like that. People who were like, I met Jamie when I was this year's old and she always made an impact on me. She's always been this, that, and the third. And like people just telling me stuff about me that I've never heard them say before. And I mean, I'm glad I was alive to get those flowers because a lot of times you're not alive to get that. You know, a lot of times people wait until you're dead to start talking about the impact you've had on their lives. And so, yeah, I will say it was a hell of a, a, a burden relief for me telling the story because it was like, <sighs> You know, it was exhausting. And then my mom wasn't helping. You know, I tell this to everybody. Like, 
when I first got my diagnosis, obviously my close circle of friends and family knew. They knew what was going on from, from the beginning. There's a group chat and all that. Um, my mom kept calling my family members and telling everybody. And I was like, stop telling everybody that I have cancer. And she's like, they need to know. And I was like, no, they don't. And I just was like, I don't know why I was trying to hide it so much, but uh, she was driving me crazy by telling everybody. Um, and so it was like for a while, only the close family and friends knew. And then like the radio station side of my life, which is a big portion of my life and my job life did not know. So I was definitely leaving a, leading a double life and it was exhausting, you know, just not being able to be my full authentic self and share with people what I was going through and why I was tired or what was going on with me because I wasn't fully talking about my diagnosis yet. And finally, I just said, screw this. Like, it's time to talk about it. You have a platform that's supposed to be educating people and connecting people in the community and, and talking about things behind the scenes. This is it. This is the platform, you know, like this is why you're here. Um, so yeah, it was an absolute burden relief for me and I'm glad I did it. And I still have the link to that video. I don't watch it you know because it's it's like a little bit too raw emotion for me like it's it's like watching yourself go through something traumatic um so i don't watch it but i do share it if i need to uh if people lots of people have seen it um and shared it themselves so i'm glad it did what it was supposed to do but i i don't watch it anymore you know i don't even i don't look at it anymore cancer is not a death sentence it's not a period it's a word it's not the end I always say I may have cancer, but cancer does not have me. That is your quote. I read that November 2021 from the Longevity website. How long did it take you to fully embrace that motto? Not long. It's my personality. I'm a, I am, I am human. Let me start by saying I'm human. I don't want anybody to sit here listening to this interview thinking that I'm, I'm a robot and I don't feel feelings. I absolutely feel feelings. I am a very emotional person. Um, but I don't live in that space. Like, yes, I have cancer, but I have stuff to do too. So like my two options are curl up in a ball and boohoo or keep it moving because you have a radio station to run. At the time I had a wedding to plan, you know, I had all of these things to do. I'm like, none of this stuff happens if I don't get myself together and, and get it together. So I'm like, yeah, I have cancer, but I still got stuff to do. So <laughs> I'll deal with it when I need to deal with it. But like, I think that was my way of compartmentalizing everything. It was just like, yeah, I have cancer that sits in this box on this shelf. And when I need to take it down and do something with it, I'll take it down and do something with it. But otherwise I put it on the shelf and I continue living my life as best as I can, you know, without it affecting me. So I will say that quote is a combination of quotes from myself and also from people around me who have, who have helped me realize these things and who have helped, you know, who've actually said some of these things to me. Um, one of my girlfriends, Chloe actually said, in a in an event that I was the uh, speaker for, she came up after I, I had done my my speech and was like, I think you can see that, you know, Jamie may have cancer, but cancer does not have her. And I was like, I need that. Bingo. And I was like, I'm taking that. I need you to know that I'm taking that <laughs> and I'm using that. And she was like, it's all yours, you know? So that has become part of my mantra, absolutely. And it's it's something that it did not take me long to come to because you know, when you're at a fork in the road in your life and you have two different directions you can go, you know, whatever direction it is you choose to go on, own that path. You know, if you if you own the path of, of boohoo, then own that path of boohoo. That's the path that you chose and nobody is saying it's a wrong choice. But the choice I made for myself was to keep moving forward and to keep things happening. And so I own it. And, you know, I fully wholeheartedly believe that I'm going to be someone that makes a difference in this. Something about my story is different. Something about what I'm going through is different and it's going to make an impact somewhere, somehow to somebody. And there's going to be a change, 
And that gives me hope, whether it's naive or not, but you know, that gives me hope and it keeps the pep in my step. Um, and yeah, I mean, cancer does not have me. I am, I am winning right now and I'm grateful for that. Knock on wood, you know, but I'm realistic and I do feel feelings and I do have moments where I'm like, why me? This is not fair. You know, what did I do? And I see people smoking on the street and I'm like, you know, like I have my moments. I absolutely do, but I don't allow myself to live in that space because it's a negative space. And I'm a firm believer that a positive attitude makes all the difference in what you're going through. And that's why I could sit in front of you now. And if I was to walk up to somebody on the street and be like, I have lung cancer, they'd be like, mm, you know, like, I don't look it. I don't know what lung cancer looks like, but I know that, you know, I don't let it own who I am as a person and I don't let it take over who I am. I don't let it take over my existence. So, you know, I like to live my life and just say, hey, I do have this, it's on a shelf. When I need to acknowledge it, I pull it down and do what I gotta do. And then I put it back on the shelf and I continue living my life. Um, and that's just, it just works for me. That may not be everybody's forte or everybody's strong point, but that's what helps me on my journey. Well, you know, being the undaunted creative you are, we talked about you picked up the bootstraps, didn't let cancer define you, picked yourself up by the bootstraps. And, and having that background in media and helping others seems to always be second nature to you. When we first connected, the pandemic had taken hold and I was looking for hands-on internships for our radio and audio students. When we spoke, I was immediately impressed with the structure of the remote internship program. The students actually get their work played on air. I'm like, this is unheard of. <laughs> Can you discuss your philosophy when putting together the internship program? Yeah, um, I've been an intern. <laughs> I know what it's like. I know, I know how hard it is and the double-edged sword that exists out there for students nowadays, especially students of color, where it's like, you know, you want a job, you want to get a job, but you need experience, but you can't get experience without the job. So it's so difficult. And you're like, ah, I rip your hair out. You know what I mean? Like, and I've been at internships where it's like, you're getting coffee and you're doing meaningless work that you know is not making an impact. So really I just took my own personal experiences in in being an intern and, and being in, in environments where, you know, I may not have been at the top of the totem pole, um, and I remembered what I liked and what I didn't like about them. And I used that as a framework for my internship with WJMS. And another key part, part of the internship is getting feedback from the students. At the end of every internship, I send them an exit survey and I say, all right, look, this is a survey. You know, obviously there's only a handful of you in this internship. And so I might know who's saying what, um, but I was like, I need you guys to fill this out honestly and candidly, and I mean that, because the information that you guys give me on this survey is how I perfect this internship for interns coming behind you. So things that worked, things that didn't work, um, you know, stuff that could be better, things that you wanted more experience doing, all of that stuff is important to hear. And I, you know, most of the time, all the students turn them in, not everybody turns in the survey, but a big portion of students do turn them in. And I've gotten feedback where I'm like, oh, that's probably a good point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I have fine tweaked and fine tuned this internship so much that, you know, if you were to look at the internship structure from day one to day whatever I'm at now, you'd be like, wow, it's like it's night and day. And that's just due to the the feedback that I get from the students who come through the program. Um, you know, I, I have been in their shoes. I know what it's like to be in an internship where you're doing things that you feel are meaningless. And so I told myself, I don't want interns who are getting coffee. It also helps that they're remote. Nobody can get me any coffee because they're all across the country. <laughs> so it's like they're getting hands-on experience. And the other thing that plays a big role in it is that I'm a one-woman show. I run the radio station and the media company by myself. So I don't have time 
to put interns in meaningless positions. Like if you're in an internship with me, you're actually helping me because I have a lot on my plate. And so when I say you're a social media intern, you're actually running the social media and we're checking in about it, you know? So if you've got campaign ideas or you have social media, you know, video ideas and stuff that you wanna do, I give you the ability to to be creative and run with it and, and really enjoy what you're doing and see how the decisions you make actually affect a real business because you know, you are running the social media for me. I look at my interns as as almost like partners in the in the radio station or media company and everybody has a role to play, um, you know, and I make sure that at the end of the day, they're getting out of this internship experience what they need, you know? So even if I've got an intern who's in say the music or the marketing um, internship position, but maybe they're interested in the finances or maybe they're interested in how the server works or maybe they want a real studio experience. There have been interns who, you know, and I put this out to all of them when they start, if there are other avenues within this media company or radio station that you're interested in and, you know, would like information on or would like experience in, let me know. And I will definitely set you up with that experience. And if I can't, I have plenty of network connections where I can find somebody for you, you know? So there's been students who are interested in print media who I've set up with, uh, you know, friends of mine that have magazines, um, students who are interested in, in real studio, you know, podcast or radio broadcasting who I've set up meetings and, and sort of uh, just connections with who actually have studio space that they can come in and visit and sit down and see the switchboard and, and, and the mixer and everything else. So I try to make sure that it's not just you guys doing work for me, but also I'm working for you too. I'm helping you get the experience that you need so that when you put a resume together or when you put together a portfolio, you have the experience that employers are looking for that is gonna set you apart from other interns who may have only gotten to get coffee for the people that they work for. You got to actually fully run a radio, you know, social media uh, account, or you got to put together an entire marketing proposal for you know a company or you got to help create you know a promotional video for what we're doing um and that's tangible stuff well not tangible but it's tangible ish stuff that they can put in a portfolio and say i did this this is what my experience is this is what i can do um and then of course you have me at the end of your internship as a reference as well and i am all too happy to help people as a reference if they need to put me down as you know a point of contact for you know job applications and things like that and so i just try to make sure that you know, it's a mutually beneficial internship, you know, I'm getting, they're helping me so much because it's like, like having those students take care of social media. So I don't have to worry about it. You know, I check and make sure it's good is so it's critical. Oh my God. It takes so much off my plate so that I can focus on the other day-to-day -day operations of the station and the media company, but also they're getting the experience that they need to do what they have to do. So I just like to make sure it's mutually beneficial on both sides. Well, and kudos to you for also providing not only internships, um, before the pandemic, but during the pandemic, because most people were shying away from internships, but not WJMS. How did those early days of the pandemic shape your programming for the radio station? I am one of the lucky ones. The pandemic did not necessarily affect WJMS as much as it did other businesses because we were already remote. <laughs> we were set up for this. This is like, we're like, oh yeah, welcome to our playground. We've been here already. Um, so I really, if anything, the pandemic helped me because a lot of students who were otherwise not looking for remote internships started considering remote internships. And my pool of candidates grew exponentially 
because there were so many students who were looking for ways to get those internship credits, but they had to find internships that were willing to do and support remote work. And we were already structured and built for it. So it was like some people really did well in the pandemic and some people really struggled during the pandemic. And I am I am understanding of that. And I am absolutely you know empathetic to those folks that did not do as well during the pandemic as others. But for us at WJMS, we actually did okay. You know, in terms of finances, of course, everybody took a hit financially, but in terms of structure and in terms of, of quality interns and in terms of being able to put out content, we didn't really miss a beat because we had a team assembled who was already remote. And so none of this was new to them. Nobody had to figure things out. We were already doing it. It was more or less like welcoming everybody else into our playground and into our swimming pool, so. When you look at WJMS Media as a whole, what are some of the things that you're most proud of when looking at the content that's been created over the years? Hmm. You know, I will say that I struggled. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I struggled in the beginning of this. I didn't know how to run a radio station. I had no uh, understanding of how to run a radio station at all. I learned all of this stuff trial by fire and Lord, have I been on fire a lot? Like it has been crazy. I, you know, when I first started the radio station, I didn't know the IT side of things. I had no idea how to fix the server. If it went down, I didn't know how to fix my audio. If there was like loop and feedback, it was, it was terrible. I really had to learn a lot of this stuff um, on my own. And so you can see, you know, you can really see the transition and the quality of content as you go down, as I start to get better and start to tweak the the software and things like that. And, you know, I know there's books probably, and there are people that could have reached out and there's so many resources. And I'm like, girl, why didn't you just like ask, <laughs> why are you struggling like this? You know? And so I can look at the content that we created in the beginning and I can look at the content that we've created even up to, to yesterday. You know, I did an interview yesterday and see the transition and see the difference. And, you know, I'm just proud of the fact that I have content on my station that is meaningful. Like I could give my somebody a link to According to RP or to Fired Up or to Sound Off or any of those shows and be like, this is something that we put out. This is something that we support, something that is on our airwaves um, and be proud of it. You know, we have content that is, I think is top notch. And I, I really am just grateful for those folks who have been along the journey with me and who have, you know, strapped in. And, you know, when I take a, a spill, we're all taking a spill. And when I get back up, we're all trudging forward together. And I'm just grateful to have that team who's here. But looking back over the years, too, I've had some major accomplishments that, you know, I, I just can't even believe. Like the fact that even this year um, and in 2020, during the pandemic, I was the, the media sponsor for the American Lung Association. That's a major organization and to be the media sponsor for it out of all the other potential media companies, you know, that are out there is big. It's very big. And this year I had the opportunity to, again, be the Raise Your Voice media sponsor for all three of their Lung Force walks, you know? And so I've really done some things that are, are amazing. I've presented in front of people that I'm like, you know, wow. And I've been in rooms and at tables with folks that, you know, is, is insane to, to think about, um, you know, even... This is something I'll share with you that I just found out. You're getting some new exclusive. Love it. Some new exclusiveness. Um, I found out that I've been invited to sit on a panel discussion for lung cancer at the Congressional Black Caucus in Washington, D.C. And that is, like, amazing. You know what I mean? So 
all of the things and all of the hard work that I put into WJMS have led me here. And I think when I pivoted the platform to be more of an advocacy platform for health and wellness and things, that's when things really started to take a lot more shape for me and really started to, the pieces started to fall into place even more because it's something near and dear to my heart, but also it's something that people realize is a true need. You know, it's definitely a true need in the community. And I think when you're filling a void in the community, um, the community helps to fill a void in you. And so over the years, looking at all the things that I've done, it's led me to where I am today. And, you know, man, the trial by fire was was hellish, definitely hellish. I, I, I there was blood, sweat and tears contained within these these four letters, but I wouldn't trade it, you know, for the world. I I there's not too many media company owners, you know, who are out there right now doing this. And and I like that I'm I'm one of the one of the few. That is an amazing story from where it first started to where it's at now. And uh, I think it's just not only wonderful, but the opportunities that you continue to to give to students, but also to the professionals that are involved with the station, whether they're on air or behind the scenes. I've got to ask you, as we start to wrap things up here, what are some of the future plans for the media company um, and maybe the radio station or a combination of both? And has there ever been for you, a guest that you would love to interview that you think of all the time? Like, I'd love to sit down with this person and pick their brain and talk about what they've done. Absolutely. Um, so the plans for WJMS are, there are so many. I, I dream of having a brick and mortar location. I dream of having like a warehouse space. And I have it like, you ever have a vision in your mind that's so clear? Like I, I have a vision of exactly what this warehouse would look like and it would be all encompassing of everything WJMS. So it would be a big, huge open space in the center for events and you know getting together with, whether it's interns or meetings, whatever. And there would be an upper level loft space where there would be offices. You know, obviously I'd have an office and you know I, I dream of having an exec board who has offices as well. Um, there'd be room in there for recording podcasts. So there'd be a couple different studios for that. There'd be a green screen room for video. Um, there would be a meeting space in general if people need to have boardroom meetings and stuff like that or, or you know what have you. But it would be a multimedia space where people can come community and you know WJMS related to use the space and get what they need from the space. And it would be something that I would wrap into the internship as well, because it would be something where students in the community who don't have access to, you know, video, uh, video studios or photography studios or, you know, even in just a, a mixer for an audio podcast or something like that can come to the WJMS headquarters and actually rent out the space or use the space, you know, and I would have events and I just I have the decorations in my head, like how it's going to look on the walls. That's that's the ultimate dream for WJMS is to have that brick and mortar location. Um, in terms of content, definitely want to have more robust video content. So we're working on putting together a lot more, and this is mostly on me. I need to be doing a little bit more vignettes about my journey and stuff like that, because I think as I discuss those things, more stuff will come from it. Um, and that's probably something I'm going to be focused on more heavily this fall. Once I have a, a full roster of interns again, um, and so that's that's going to be one of the things I definitely want to bring on some more podcasts and stuff and and content that people will enjoy listening to and that is educational that people can get something out of. I actually would like to do some kind of health and wellness related podcast with either 
any of the organizations that I'm working with, whether whether it's Lung Cancer Research Foundation, Longevity, American Lung Association, the White Ribbon Project, um, any of these these advocacy programs that I'm affiliated with, I'd love to have some kind of regular podcast or something. You know, I'm not sure. I haven't structured it yet to figure out what that looks like, but just something where we're continuously bringing folks on and talking about things. Um, and I just want WJMS Media to be at the forefront of making change. One of the big things I'm passionate about is lung cancer screening. Um, the reason why is because of my own personal story. Uh, I would have never been screened. The screening criteria for lung cancer is practically impossible for anybody to fit. You know, it's like above 60 or something crazy. It's like, you know, people who have smoked a pack a day, who quit within the last four business days. It's like the most ridiculous criteria <laughs> for um, getting screened for lung cancer and the insurance companies make it very difficult for people to get screened for lung cancer. So much so that I'm like, I look at my own story and you know, regular, healthy, no history of cancer in my family, non-smoker, no asthma, no allergies. I was doomed from the beginning. I was never going to be screened for this. There was no way they were going to catch this because I, they just had no reason to be looking. And so I want nobody else to have to go through this. I want there to be less red tape around screening um, if you want to get a lung cancer screening, I want the same energy put into breast cancer to be put into lung cancer. And so part of that is erasing the stigma behind lung cancer being a smoker's disease because that's misinformation. Um, and I would like the, that the screening criteria be adjusted to fit more communities, people of, you know, communities of color, um, underserved communities, just people who are younger, because there's a, a population of 20 to 25% of young people who are getting late stage cancer, lung cancer. And the crazy part is they always say the key to lung cancer is early detection, but the screening criteria doesn't allow for that. So the math ain't mathin', <laughs> you know? So I, I would love for WJMS Media to be at the forefront of getting change put forth in the screening criteria for lung cancer. And if I can get just one person screened for lung cancer who otherwise would have been missed, then for me, then my, I'm fulfilling my dream. And that's all I need. Um, in terms of interviewing somebody, I would love to sit down with Michelle Alexander. She is somebody who, I, I know I would just have an amazing conversation with her. Uh, Michelle Alexander is the author of The New Jim Crow, which is a book that talks about the prison industrial complex and how private prisons uh, profit off of prisoners and, you know, don't, put the emphasis on rehabilitation so that prisoners can come back into society as fully functioning, you know, men and women. And she wrote an amazing book about that. And it, it just peeled the wool back from my eyes and I will never be the same. I, that's one of the things, if you were to stick me in an elevator and say, you have one topic that you can, the elevator is going to stop and you have an hour, you have one topic that you can talk about for an hour, unrehearsed, unresearched. I could talk about the prison industrial complex for an hour or WJMS media or lung cancer advocacy, but prison industrial complex is one of those things that I'm passionate about. And, and private prisons are, are atrocious. If you ever get a chance to research it, go ahead and research it. It makes you really just be like, wow. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I digress. That was a very long answer, but yeah, Michelle Alexander would be a dream podcast guest for me. Obviously Barack or Michelle would be great. Um, you know, I would love to talk to, you know, I'm trying to think, you put me on the spot now and I'm trying to think of other people that I would love to talk to. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of people that I would love to just 
just have a one-on-one with real quick. Sure. But first, first thought is is Michelle Alexander, and she's somebody I've actually tried to reach out to before, but I'm too little. Well, that's our <laughs> shout out again. That's our shout out. You never know, right? Yeah, she's not paying attention to little old me just yet. I got to get a little bigger before I get up on her radar. Oh, but please! You you have done so much that I I think it would be an honor for her to talk to you because you have just really made so many strides in in the industry and also outside of the industry. So last question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Last question. What do you look for in candidates who are interested in an internship with WJMS? And I want you to be as real as you can. I mean, um, I always talk to students. I'm an internship and career advisor, and I approachability, um, all those things come into place, obviously, but what are some things on your end outside of the technical skills that you look for? I look for a student who is, I hate to say it because I hate this word, but I look for a student who's outgoing. Um, I need a student who is creative, um, a student who can work independently. That's critical in a remote internship because if you're somebody who doesn't work well independently, you don't, you're not going to thrive in a remote atmosphere because there's nobody telling you what to do. Um, And so you'll be kind of sitting there twirling your thumbs like, you know, I need people who are self-starters uh, and who are going to communicate with me honestly. You know what I mean? So, like I said, I treat interns like they're partners in the station. So I have ideas. And when they have ideas, I'm like, all right, let's talk about it. You know, like you want to do this. All right. What does this look like? What's the structure for it? What's the frequency? When are you going to post? How are you going to do it? What's What does it look like? And we talk about it. And I'm like, if it looks like something that aligns with what we're doing, I mean, I'm obviously not giving them carte blanche to do whatever they want because that's just chaos. But And we do have a brand to keep you know intact. But if it's something that is within our brand and they're creative and they can put it together and they can own it, I will absolutely support you and help you do it. You know, because I want to see how it pans out myself. I'm curious to see how it works too. You know, <laughs> we're going to figure this out together. Um, But so I look for students who are self-starters and who have creative ideas, uh, students who are passionate about the role that they're in. You know, I try not to put students in positions that they're going to struggle in. You know, so if you're a a business accounting major, I'm probably not going to put you in the music role, you know, unless you've got some kind of extracurricular, you know, music activities that you do. um, I'm not going to put you into something that I don't see a direct correlation to either your major or your passion. You know, and so I try to align internships with majors and passions because I feel like that's where you get the most genuine work out of students. When you put them in positions they don't relate to, you're going to get unrelated work. If you put a position or put a student in a position that they're passionate about or that relates to their major, you're going to get genuine interest and feedback from them because this is something that they may potentially want to do with their life when they get out of school or it's something that they're actually doing right now and they're looking for ways to expand on that. So I always try to find... um, students who align with the positions well um, and and make sure that students aren't going to struggle if they're in a role. I am more than happy to support a student, you know, trying to learn uh, a position because uh, that's what we're here for. But I want to also make sure that at the end of the day, you're going to be able to meet the criteria that we have. So if you can't um, meet the foundations of the criteria, then I'm probably not going to put you in that position because I don't want you to struggle like that, you know, and it's a remote internship. So I can't sit next to you and really show you exactly what's going on. I need this to be more of a partnership where we can work together on things and I can help expand on what you've already put together for yourself. Um, So, but yeah, I look, and I look for students who are willing to learn. I look for students who are coachable. You got to be coachable. So I could say, I can give you constructive criticism and say, that wasn't great. (laughs) Let's talk about why let's fix it. And we're going to do it again. 
Um, you know, and I need students to be able to handle that kind of criticism because I'm, I'm only trying to help. And I'm also trying to make sure that we maintain our brand. And, you know, even though this is a creative internship, we still do have to maintain images. So I do like students who can take constructive criticism as well. But yeah, I mean, I don't have a, a age requirement or a, a learning year requirement. You can be freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. I've seen kids try to apply who are in high school. I will say we only take college students. So unfortunately, if you're high school, put a pin in it, come back to us when you're in college and we'll definitely look and see where you fit. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm looking for students who are interested and passionate about media and who are interested in the mission and vision of WJMS Media. And if you align with that and you align with the internship, then you and I will work very well together. Well, Jamie Bowles, you continue to make an impact on so many lives by being a mentor, an advocate for others, an inspiration, and a damn good person. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today on The Undaunted Creative. Tom, thank you for having me and for all the compliments. <laughs> giving me all the warm and fuzzies. <laughs> oh, th this was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you.